you go into your shower feeling tired. But as soon as you reach for the Irish Spring, your day immediately gets better. That crisp, fresh, unmistakable Irish Spring scent zings your brain and awakens your senses. So when you finally emerge from the shower 37 minutes later, because you pay the water bill so you can stay in there as long as you want, you're ready to take on the day and smell great doing it. Irish Spring Body Wash and Bar Soap. Fresh, green, Irish. Shop now at a store near you. At JCPenney, fashion counts for everybody and everybody. The weather is getting warmer and it's time to swap my winter layers for fun, vibrant, and cool clothing with so many fun things happening this spring like Mother's Day and the Wind Down Tour. It's hard to find great looking clothes that fit you just right. That's why I love JCPenney. JCPenney has so many stylish and comfortable options for so many different body types. I've been blown away by their selection and everything hugs my body in all the right spots. Refresh your wardrobe this spring with style that gets you. Something to wear that fits your favorite moments of the season at prices that feel just as good. Discover brands that get you and put style and comfort first, like Worthington and Liz Claiborne for her, each in women's petite and plus sizes. Here, spring comes in all shapes, sizes, and colors. JCPenney, make everybody count. You can work from the road while turning your vehicle into a powerful high-speed data Wi-Fi hotspot with AT&T in-car Wi-Fi. On a network that covers more roads than any other carrier. Connect up to 10 devices and stream conference calls. Finish up that presentation or answer last-minute emails. Go to att.com slash in-car Wi-Fi to see if you're eligible for a free trial today. Based on independent third-party data, always pay careful attention to the road and don't drive distracted. Wi-Fi hotspot intended for passenger use only when vehicle is in operation. Compatible device and vehicle required. All right, here for another edition of the Huddle and Flow podcast. I'm Steve White here with my guy, Jim Trotter. And, Jim, we're going into week 17. So by the end of the weekend, we're going to know who's going to the playoffs. Before today's discussion, we're also going to know what coaching vacancies and what general manager vacancies uh, could be staring us in the face because we are going to have Mike Loxley, who's the head coach at the University of Maryland and who started the National Coalition of Minority Football Coaches, join us to hopefully give us some clarity on some of the situations when it comes to diverse candidates that they're trying to get in front of owners and to get some interviews. Mike's one of the more interesting guys that you'll talk to um, because he's really passionate about this. You know, as he once said to me, he feels that, you know, at 50 years old, he's now in the back nine of his career. And when he's done, he wants to, to be able to say that he had an impact, not just in terms of for himself, but for you know, the young minority coaches coming up and whatnot. So for him to take time during this pandemic to follow through on an idea that he had been thinking about for a while in terms of creating this coalition. And the thing that's so impressive to me is beyond the fact that he just wants to, he's not just trying to highlight what the problem is, but trying to find solutions, is when you look at the people who have linked up with him in terms of on his board of director directors, these are people who are influencers have sway, man. Football, you know, when you talk about an Ozzy Newsom, a Mike Tomlin, a Bill Polian, um, a Doug Nick Williams, Saban. Nick Saban, I mean, just Debbie Yao um, from the college game. Uh, you just keep going down the list. Willie Jeffries. I mean, so many. Um, Chris Greer, the GM in Miami. You know, this. some of right. these guys don't really even talk much to us. 
So for them to be able to put their name on it and join with him to try and address this situation to find solutions, I think is very powerful. So I think people, I know people will enjoy this conversation uh, because I think you'll learn something. Yeah, look, and, and Locks has got, you know, so much credibility in terms of he's coached for a long time. He's coached at Army, Maryland, Florida, Illinois, New Mexico. He was the OC at Alabama. A lot of people don't talk about it, Jim. They give they give all these props to Lane Kiffin and Steve Sarkeesian, but he was Tua Tungavailoa's OC at Alabama. He was the guy who who set the stage and who schemed the plays and who called the plays. So his his resume is deep too. I mean, he should be much more of a household name um, than what he is. But Jim, quickly before we get to Mike, let's look at some of the coaching and potential GM vacancies because now we're getting close. We're starting to hear. A lot of different things. So we know Houston, Detroit, and Atlanta have fired their coaches. Um, the Jets are expected to fire Adam Gase. But here's some now with some question marks. Philadelphia and Doug Peterson, um, right. which is interesting. Did not speak to the nature of the NFL and the what have you done lately for me attitude that permeates the NFL that – you know, you can win a Super Bowl a couple of years ago and all of a sudden now be out of a job or potentially out of a job and, and talk about you being out of a job. Look, we saw Dan Quinn get the Falcons to a Super Bowl um, and they lose it. And a few years later, he's out of a job. It's just the NFL is a tough business, man. So I remember watching after Sunday's game, seeing Andy Reid, you know, after they clinched the number one seed in the AFC, talking about just how tough it is to win in the NFL. And I think we take it for granted sometimes because we we hear every year of teams going from worst to first or someone being out of the playoffs one year and being in the playoffs the next year, maybe even making a run. But it is a tough business for coaches. Um, and I don't know what's going to happen. All I know is that there are going to be openings. And I just hope that that we start to move in a direction where we level this playing field a little bit. Right. Because here's some other coaching you know jobs we're, we're, we're hearing they could open up, you know, Chicago with Matt Nagy, speaking to someone who made a nice little playoff run just a couple years ago. He could be out. Jacksonville, they've secured the top pick. They're a one-win team going into week 17. Doug Marone might not necessarily be out. They're looking for a new general manager, but we're hearing that he could be there. But here's another interesting one, Jim, is Anthony Lynn. Two weeks ago, right. we I think we both felt like there's no shot. All of a sudden, they start – winning some of the games that they lost early in the year. And so now it could be, well, we would have just made that field goal. We played good enough with all these injuries with this young quarterback. Maybe we're going to keep Anthony Lynn around for another year. He's got one more year left on his deal. Gene Spanos won't have to pay him and his staff not to coach and also pay another staff to come in. So, you know, if that does become open, that's a freaking gl- – that's a glorious job in terms of personnel. Um, the other thing there, though, Steve, is as a head coach, do you want to be a lame duck head coach? Right. I mean, do you want to be coaching in the final year of your deal? And what's the message if you do hit a rough patch in that final season? Not to say you're out of anything, but you hit a rough patch and your players know that you don't have a contract beyond that current season. So I've never been a big fan of having coaches um, be in lame duck situations. Either you make a commitment to the guy or you don't. And hopefully Anthony Lynn does not find himself in that situation. I, I agree because I think he's actually done a, a pretty good job. Clearly they've got some stuff to figure out. Uh, GMs were looking at the Jags, Houston, Washington, 
is going to add a GM, even though we're hearing that Marty Herney, who worked with Ron Rivera down in Carolina, could be, you know, there, there could be a reunion right there. We know Atlanta is also. Is, uh, is Washington going to add a new owner? <laughs> Jim? Just asking. Just that asking the question a, that others are that asking. That would be a want to know. You know, and that would be a negative unless all of a sudden, you know, something radical happens. Uh, what is the saying? It is still under investigation. I believe that that's that's the yeah. common phrase. So, yeah. And, and there are and there are excited. right. And there are some people with some pockets who are ready to step right in to this uh, lucrative industry in non-COVID years. So, well, Jim, on the note, I mean, we're, we're seeing what's going on, but let's let's bring in locks. And let's have him talk about what his uh, National Coalition of Minority Football Coaches, um, some solutions they're trying to come up with, and maybe get some names of some people that we haven't heard about that uh, could be on the interview list. So right now, let's bring in Mike Loxley, the University of Maryland head coach. All right, Jim, now we're joined by our special guest, uh, Maryland coach Mike Loxley, who also earlier this year started the National Coalition of Minority Football Coaches. Uh, Mike, thanks so much for hanging with us because this is a real important time and your input here is going to be highly valued. Well, thanks for having me, guys. Appreciate you guys bringing me on. Before before we get going, Steve, I got to ask Coach Lox, how, how do we get that photo behind him of Lenny B.? How do we come across one of those? Man, I actually got this at a, a golf auction. This is one of those deals, man. This reminds me of my childhood, uh, being here in that D.C. area, having a chance to go watch Lynn Bias over the old Cole Fieldhouse. So this this is one of my prized possessions here. Tremendous. Yeah, player, for, all the, for all those folks who don't, who don't remember Lynn Bias, of course, who tragically died uh, after being drafted uh, by the Boston Celtics. Um other than Michael Jordan, they played in the same era. They were probably the two best one-on-one basketball players, maybe in the history of collegiate basketball. All right, but let's get to the matter at hand, Coach, because as we know, we're coming up on week 17 of the NFL season, and we know there's going to be coaching changes. We know there's – we've already seen some coaches fire. We know there's general manager vacancies. And part of your, your group, um, an advocacy group, a watchdog group, a group to also – put candidates in front of NFL teams and owners, um, it's going to be used a lot. People are going to contact you, and you, of course, are going to contact teams. What has been the rapport so far in terms of teams using you guys as a resource? Yeah, you know, so far in this early hiring cycle, which obviously started with the college uh, cycle, you know, a couple of months back, when I think Southern Miss was the first job to open up. And I can tell you from that time till now, uh, the coalition has been engaged in conversations with the right people. Um, I can't sit here and say that every opening has engaged the coalition or, or, or brought us into to the mix with uh, providing them with some resources that we can offer. But we have been very engaged with uh, pretty much just about uh, each and every opening, um, whether it's us through uh, communications to them of our availability and us wanting to be a part of a resource for them as they look into filling those positions. And um, so far, so good. Obviously, you know, we've been some things have been filled and they haven't been filled with any of our candidates, which is disappointing. But we do understand. I mean, we're a new organization that's just kind of anchoring down and, and, and uh, we're going to continue to advocate 
and be allies for the people that, uh, that, that are part of our organization or people within our organization that we feel are very capable of being able to do the job of leading uh, football programs. Mike, let's let's go back to the beginning and just tell people, number one, exactly what the purpose of your your coalition is and how it came about. Yeah, you know, the, the, the way it came about is usually easier to talk about that first. Um, it started early pandemic. I, as I've told the story before, I can remember being kind of locked up here at my house and you know, by myself within my own thoughts. And I can remember just the conversation coming up about the lack of uh, minority coaches. And I thought back to the last time I was a head coach at the University of New Mexico, and I thought at one point we had maybe gotten it up to 18 or 19 uh, minorities in, in positions of head college coaches. And then when I look around and I saw doing a couple of the Zooms that we've done over the, the early pandemic, that it was down to 14, it just it made me think, like, what what's going what's gone wrong? What issue? And, uh, you know, before we had the Black Coaches Association, which I was a member of, and I know they were advocates and, and tried to, to do their part to help uh, level the playing field per se. But with that disbandment, I looked around and I said, what else is there out there to, to utilize or to, to fight for for us? And so uh, I called, I'll never forget picking up the phone call and Mike Tomlin was my first phone call. And I said, Mike T, I said, look, here's what I'm thinking about doing. Don't know how to put it together any of the infrastructure involved with it, but this is my thoughts. And he says, I'm right, I'm with it. Whatever you want to do, he said, count me in. And so I had a bunch of those phone calls, which, uh, you know, and then I got with Thomas Bundy, who serves as our, uh, the lawyer for the coalition to kind of organize it, dot the I's and cross the T's to make sure that it was put together properly. And then I just enlisted the help of a lot of people that, helped me get back to this chair in terms of Debbie Yao and Nick Saban and Ozzie Newsom and, you know, Doug Williams, all these people that I had utilized over the years of my career as resources. And I told them what I wanted to do. And they all jumped both feet in with no questions asked to kind of help put this thing together. And now, you know, as we grow as an organization, we're going to continue to be advocates to prepare, promote, and produce uh, the next wave of minority coaches that that should and could be capable of doing the job. Mike dropped some of the names in there. Some people were help, helping organize this. I think it's important because it's it's wide, it's really widespread. You talked about Ozzie Newsome, Nick Saban, Bill Polian, Mike Tomlin, Doug Williams, Buddy Pugh down at South Carolina State, um, Willie Jeffries, first black coach at, with, you know, in Division of Wichita State, longtime Howard in South Carolina State coach, Chris Greer with the Dolphins, Debbie Yao, Rick Smith, and Desiree Reed Francois, the UNL, uh, UNLV athletic director and first Hispanic female and w- woman of color uh, at that level. So I just wanted to mention that because this is a, a, a big, very diverse, very wide, widespread group with, with a lot of antennas and a lot of connections. It is, and it was put together that way kind of intentionally because, one, it's going to take all of us to get this thing out in the forefront, not just, you know, minority coaches. And so uh, the enlist of people like Bill Polian and, and Nick Saban and Desiree and Debbie Yao, to me, again, those antennas that they have and those connections and ties they have throughout this industry, I think will validate when we do suggest or make suggestions of, of candidates that are very capable. You know, we're not just pulling names out of a hat. These are names that have been vetted by some of the, 
top and top echelon of this field, whether it's athletic directors, GMs, or head coaches, as to what a, a good coach consists of or who's prepared. And it's our job as the coalition to make sure that they are prepared and we do our job to promote the jobs that they're doing. And then we produce the names to the, the, the people that need to know who they are to help them maybe uh, get opportunities that they, they're prepared for. Locks, can you kind of take us through the process of how you go about determining, one, who is prepared, putting together your list and determining who is prepared to be on that list? Yeah, that's the, the great thing about it. A lot of it is through research. You know, we have an, a, an executive or operational team that goes through and well, we've enlisted the help of uh, Sports by the Numbers, uh, analytics company that brings together data points as to the success as position coaches, coordinators, uh, as well as head coaches, some of the guys that are maybe head coaches at lower levels. And through this process, we, we pull out names. Uh, we, we get together with our executive team uh, to, to do research basically on these names to validate the jobs they've done. Um, and then once we kind of formulate this list, you know, we'll have our executive committee meetings to go through these lists. And we have a committee that oversees the, this, the, the, the list that we come up with. And then from there, we do our research to figure out what, what areas can we strengthen them as they go out and we start preparing them for these opportunities to interview. And if there's an area that they may not be strong in, the coalition puts together the team of people to come in and strengthen maybe that side of, of their resume so that they can go and put their best foot forward when they're given these opportunities. You know, Lox, what's amazing to me, the last stat I read said that in the Power Five, among the Power Five conferences, there are only eight black head coaches among the 65 positions, and there are none, zero, among the 24 positions in the SEC and the Big 12. I'm just trying to wrap my head around how you all as coaches, particularly coaches of color, um, deal with that and, and the frustration of that. that. I mean, in today's age, in 2020, almost 2021, I, I, it's, it's hard to fathom that. Yeah, th those those are tough numbers to swallow because again, when you look at the, the the people playing it at a high level, and then you look at some of the jobs that some of the minority coaches that we've identified, there are enough qualified candidates uh, that are capable, in my opinion, to lead uh, institutions like those in the SEC and the Big Twelve. And that, like I said, instead of us continuing to harp on that problem. What, what I'm trying to do through the coalition is come up with solutions as quickly and as fast as we can as an organization to get out in front, whether we uh, engage the commissioners of these leagues to let them know we see that they're zero and how can the coalition play a role in helping you fix this, uh, this issue, the systemic issue, uh, because we have candidates that are capable of leading these institutions. And uh, we're going to continue to do our part to be proactive, uh, to continue to figure out the solutions and, and engage in the people that have the power to make these decisions. Locks, I'm, I'm curious your thoughts as a head coach now in your second go around. What exactly are the traits of, of a good head coach? Because Personally speaking, I'm kind of worn out on this. Well, he has this. He has to come from this side of the ball. He has to have this background. There are so many things involved with being a success, successful head coach that have nothing to do with which side of the ball you're on, et cetera. So from your standpoint, what are the quality or traits of a good head coach? 
Uh, I think it's one that that has the ability to bring people together. Um, you look at the type of hires that have been made. You know, they've made this uh, special teams position as kind of the new niche for hiring because they deal with all phases of the program and they touch everyone in the program. You see strength coaches now like Scott Cochran from Alabama become a position coach again. So I think it starts with the leadership of being able to bring people together. I think it's all about the ability from a relationship standpoint and a leadership standpoint that you have what it takes to take 18 to 22 year old young men, women, uh, where they can't take themselves. And that's what I think as minorities we've been doing for a long time because we've always had to overcome adversity. I think, you know, so many times and one of the areas that you look when they hire coaches, one of the things they use against is that they, he was a failed head coach. But there's so many examples of failed first-time head coaches that have become great second-time head coaches. That, I, that excuse isn't there. I mean, nobody can tell me that Hugh Jackson – who has led some of the most prolific offenses in the history of the NFL, and then he goes to Cleveland and fails as a head coach, which many others have done, that he's a bad coach now. Yeah. Yeah. All of a sudden he can't coach. And, 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 and you've seen it time and time again where, you know, I think, and that's one of the strengths I think I have is because I was a failed head coach. I'm a much better head coach a second time around because you don't learn a lot from success. You usually learn from facing adversity. And I think there's a lot of really good minority coaches that may not get opportunities because they may have failed earlier in their careers or at some point in their career. And they look at failure as final, but that's not the case. And I, I want to use the coalition as a way to showcase that, hey, just because a guy may have failed in Cleveland doesn't mean he'll fail in Washington or he'll fail in Houston or he'll fail in Atlanta. You know, you have to look deeper into the numbers and uh, do your research to see the success that these people and these candidates have had throughout their careers are not just one one chapter of their career. Is Mike, there? not even about failing someplace because we've got a coach out there who's available who who succeeded in Detroit, right. um, you know, and Jim and Jim Caldwell. So, um, but I, you know, and, and Jim, I'm sorry to cut you off. No, you're but good. what you said, you're 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 better the second time around. We've heard Raheem Morris say that he, he's the interim co- coach of the Falcons right. now, but of course. He was a young head coach in Tampa Bay. And again, I'm on, I'm on the NFL level here, but we're, we're seeing some of these coaches, like you just said, I've learned a lot. I know how to build a staff better. I know how to communicate more empowering to 53 instead of a position group. Um, what are some of the things you took and with some of the counseling? Because you said you're trying to strengthen some of the candidates. You've, what are some of the things you've encountered to try to help people, again, maybe succeed the second time around? or to be better the first time around? Well, I think one for me, it's uh, I'll never forget that when I got let go at New Mexico and it really was the first time in my life I had failed because I'd gotten on a fast track as a young assistant, became a coordinator that helped take Illinois to the Rose Bowl and really was uh, well thought of in an interview for quite a few positions, head coaching opportunities. But what, what I learned really quickly is that, you know, after – Failing at New Mexico, I'll never forget at the time, my agent called and said, listen, while this is fresh in your mind, you know, maybe utilize this next week or two to write down what you would do differently now that you've had an opportunity. And it was the best exercise that I ever took, I ever did because, you know, I filled up a ledger, I had a, a nice ledger and I filled it up with just notes of things I liked that I did, things that I would do differently. And I'll never forget the first 
the first line when I opened up the book, it was said, it said, have fun with it. You know, because for some reason, when you, you get into this chair and then everything comes at you like drinking water out of a fire hose, uh, you lose the, the vision of having fun with the opportunity that you were given. And uh, I know for me, New Mexico was no fun from the day I sat in that chair to the day they escorted me out of there. But I was able to write down and clearly what I call quality control, what I would do differently and what things I thought I did well. And so some of the things I impart on coaches when I talk to guys that have just been let go or guys that are going through it, that have been through it is, hey, while it's fresh, think about the things you would do differently because you're you're going to get a second opportunity. You know, Locks, I know you guys are are still laying the foundation right now with the coalition having just started um, earlier this year. Have you guys had time to put together a list? And I wonder if if at this point you could share some of the coaches who were on that. Yeah, we we've been able to uh, put together some names of some people that. Again, and, and one of the things I know a lot of people love to hear names and they want to put their list out. And, you know, for us, it's about the fit because not every person will fit with every job. And that's what I've tried to say when we've engaged others. When you talk about fit and we talk about fit at the NFL level, what what do you think we're what specifically are we talking about there? Um, I think the, the the success the person has had, I think that's what owners gauge their uh, they gauge their moving moving of the needle by who's had success or been a part or affiliated. It's a lot like me getting under the Nick Saban umbrella. Um, they look at the institutions or organizations that have had success and they want people from those types of organizations. And so obviously we'll utilize that that part of it, but also again, the, the reinventing or the rebranding of some of the guys that have maybe had opportunities at places where they didn't succeed at first to be able to show the success that guys have a second go around because of what they learned from the first go around. Okay, Mike. So let's, let's get okay, So example, trying to make a fit. Okay. Although the Jacksonville head coaching job is still filled by Doug Marone. That is one that's expected to come open. They've got, now they've got the first, they're locked into the first overall pick. Is it too shallow to say, that a head coaching candidate for that needs to be someone because if they take Trevor Lawrence, okay, again, we're playing the the, the shallow hypothetical here. Do you want the head coach, someone who could handle a young quarterback to get him on the field right away that plays to Trevor Lawrence's strengths, okay, because that's the shallow take, or do you want someone who's got a quarterback who's got 52 other guys who also has to deal with crisis management? So how do you say what is the proper fit? Knowing what you know as a head coach – that it's a lot more than saying we need a head coach who can coach the RPO scheme, knows protections, and keep my guy standing up. Yeah, it's definitely the second one that you explain. Um, you know, hiring a guy that can encompass and meet all those needs are really important. And that's where, again, um, doing the research on guys that have the ability to lead through crisis as well as manage having a number one pick at the, at the quarterback position. I mean, I use the, you know, example of, of Flores down in Miami. I mean, you know, he has a franchise quarterback. Uh, he's kind of helped stabilize the Miami organization, which had been one of those ones that went up and down. And he's kind of got it stabilized because, to me, the fit of his personality as a leader and coming from a pedigree of having been a part of an organization that, 
has done it over a long period of time. I thought that like a fit like that is exactly what is needed more than a flash in a pan guy that hey has coached quarterbacks and that can manage. That's one part of your your job, and one, it's a huge part when you got a franchise quarterback. But I think the the second piece of it is being able to manage, navigate, and lead not just when things are going well, but also when you have crisis. You know, Locks, you've heard this from, I'm sure, from other coaches, aspiring head coaches and whatnot, and they talk about, particularly at the NFL level, the comfort level being so important in terms of that coach with the ownership. And yet these coaches don't have a lot of access to these owners, uh, particularly as it relates to quality time. What is a way we can go about changing that so that these owners get to know these coaches, at least on a personal level even, to make that decision easier? Well, and I think that's to me, you know, I know the NFL has the rule in which being able to interview interview people, they have to get permission and because of some of the contracts. Um, I think that limits the access because one of the things I learned under Nick Saban and, and it really holds true is, you know, he, he would have a position open and already know who he's going to hire, but would interview probably five or six other people because it was, hey, if I don't hire this person this time, I have them in my database for the next time. And I think, you know, the more opportunities that minorities are able to get in front in in these interviews and in these opportunities uh, when they come about, those opportunities open up the door that now they spend good quality time, one-on-one time with some of the people that are of power and making these decisions, and they really get to know them. And so maybe this time the hire isn't the one, but down the road, I think, that because of the time that they spent together in that process, there's a, 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 a little more uh, personal uh, relationship there than just a name that you see on a sheet of paper. So you, it sounds like you're a proponent of always taking the interview as opposed to some minority coaches who say, I don't want to do a sham interview knowing that that organization has already decided who they're hiring. Am I yeah. hearing that correctly? Well, I would say I would definitely not be for saying take a sham interview um obviously when you're on the inside you know whether or not the decision has been made but i've also seen where they may have decided that this is the direction they're going to go and they think that's what they're going to do and then all of a sudden you bring in four or five guys and somebody wows you and it's like it it opens up that opportunity so i would say that you've got to kind of pick and choose and make sure you do your research well, the, like, the reason we- I ask that, Locks, is is there's a fear. Like, there's one former GM that I've spoken to who says if he doesn't get a job this time around, he thinks he's not going to interview again simply because he's done so many interviews and teams know who he is. Is that a real danger that if you do too many interviews or you do a number of interviews, you don't get hired, that all of a sudden other teams start asking, well, why is no one hiring this person? Therefore, I don't want to take that chance. How real is that? Yeah, I think that's very real. And that's where, again, I think on each individual basis, they have to look at the the interest level they have to make sure that it's one that's uh, it's reciprocated on the other end. And then it's not just for show or just to check a box per se, because you can very well. I can remember talking to Charlie Strong Um, before he became the head coach at Louisville and him being very patient about what and where he interviewed and what jobs he was interested in because he, again, I'll never forget. He said, you only get one chance locks and I want to make sure I get a good one chance because you know, you never know if you'll get the second. 
And so there were times where he had interviewed for so many jobs that, again, people all of a sudden started looking to say, well, well, maybe he doesn't interview very well. Or why, why is it that he's not getting jobs? So I do think there is some uh, important uh, importance to planning and making sure that the jobs you do go after are jobs you have a chance for. Glad you mentioned the, oh, he doesn't interview well excuse, because good Lord, when it comes to black candidates and candidates of color, I don't think I've ever heard teams use more of a cop-out than that locks. I mean, I'm tell, I, can't, I can't tell you how many times. Jim, you've heard it. We've all heard it. Oh, this guy doesn't interview well. Come on, man. Well, you know, but, but, but on that note, I mean, what do, you, what do you tell guys when they go to interview? Because you know there's somebody in that room that say, uh, he didn't interview as well as that guy. Yet their tape, their pedigree, their resume is as thick as it gets. Yeah, and that's, again, I, I really am a big believer that uh, – you know, the, the don't interview well, uh, obviously the guy has an expertise. And that's where I think for us as a coalition, you know, when we do put together our names and our list of people and we start engaging people, we do our part to make sure that we can take that part out of the equation. Because when you've sat down and you've, you know, whether it's done a mark interview with Nick Saban or Mike Tomlin or, or a GM like Chris Greer or Ozzie Newsom, our people know exactly the questions and the type of situation that this interview process will be like. And so we're going to make sure that can't be the excuse, because if all of a sudden you say the guy didn't interview well and we've uh, trained and, and had him teed up to go in and do a great job and have seen it and witnessed it through our educationing of, of our candidates, uh, that, that one won't sit very well with, with the coalition. Locks, I'm curious. Um Will the coalition be aggressive in terms of each time there is a opening, whether it's on the highest level of, of, of college football or at the NFL, of being proactive and going to that that school or that organization and saying, before you do anything, we'd like to talk to you about people we think that would be a good fit here with you? Yeah, that we've made that a practice, a normal practice for us um, every job opportunity that's opened up from the NFL, even to some of the lower levels of college uh, football. Uh, we engage via certified letter, email, phone call to the institutions. To We've, we've done it to conference commissioners uh, where we engage them with, we are here as a resource. We'd love to engage you guys. And, and like I said, we've done that with each and every opening NFL and college. And, and we've, we've, we've seen We've had great engagement from a lot of these places, just some initial conversations with it, as well as some of the search firms, the top search firms have engaged us themselves. You know, Locks, we get this all the time, and I know what my response is, but I will I want to hear yours on this. I always get people who come at me and say, why do you make race such a big issue? Why can't teams or schools just hire the best person for the job? Your response to that? I mean, again, we had we didn't invent racism. We didn't invent this system. Thank you. So thank you. Uh, we learned it, and so for us to have to bring it to the forefront of people's attention um, as an organization, that's what the coalition is going to do. Um, it's an issue because of what we've learned and uh, what we saw, what we've seen systematically. And again, not here to be part of the problem. We're, we're here to be more for the solutions and we want to be part of helping create solutions 
Locks, you know, when Jim's talked about, you know, why was people asking, why do you guys make race an issue? Here's why we make it an issue. And in part because as media members, Jim and I, there aren't many reporters and media members of color. And a lot of times, as you mentioned earlier, you know, commissioners, school presidents and team owners, they look at who the media is talking about. So if we see some of our brethren in the media putting these names out there like, man, that guy's resume does not stack up to Pep Hamilton's. Right. right. Who's 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 got a great who's done a great things with Justin Herbert right. out with the Chargers yet. Yeah, they're, they're people are pushing other people. You know, so th- this is why we make race an issue, because Jim and I, th- this is part of what we do. But, but one thing I also want to make sure clear with your coalition, that you are a complimentary asset to the Fritz Pollard Association, not a not a competitor, so to speak. Yeah, there's no com- competition. We are allies with any and all organizations that are doing whatever they can to help level this playing field. Uh, by no means are we here to be adversarial to any organization that fights for uh, minority representation. You know, Locks, I know you're looking for solutions, but I'm curious just from a psychological standpoint, when you see coaches, let's say on the collegiate level, in the past, it had always been the coaches aspired to get to the highest level possible, which was the NFL. And last year, for instance, we saw Tony Elliott of Clemson decline to be interviewed by the Carolina Panthers for their head coaching position. And I wonder if we if we are at a point where minority coaches at the collegiate level are saying, you know what? I don't like what I see in the NFL. And I don't think it's a level playing field. And therefore... I'm not even going to open myself up to that. Is that a discussion that goes on among you all as coaches? You know what? That's not one we've had yet because I think one, those opportunities have been far and few between for us to even become a discussion. I don't think, you know, I don't hear about as many of the successful, you know, the James Franklins who had great success up at Penn state in their times you hear his name, maybe bandied about the NFL, but to hear the college uh, minority coaches name being bandied at the highest level, uh, we, we just haven't seen a lot of it. So I can't say that it has been a discussion or a topic of discussion. I know for us, it's disturbing that again, the numbers, the trends continue to da- continue a downward spiral um, at that level, as well as at the college level. And, and that we've got to figure out solutions really quickly to, to, to either fix that, fix the issue or create the, uh, create the uh, infrastructure to be able to provide people to fill those opportunities. I, I know you're not going to pat yourself on the back, but I'm going to say this is when it really hit me um, hard it was a few years ago when you had Alabama and Clemson playing in the national championship game and you were the offensive coordinator for Alabama and Tua was putting up record setting numbers and you had Tony Elliott as co-offensive coordinator at Clemson with Trevor Lawrence, who was even at that time, people were looking at potentially being a number one pick in the draft. And yet neither of you, two men of color, neither of you even got a call to interview for an NFL head coaching job. And I'm not even saying get the job. I'm just saying be interviewed for the job since the focus was on young offensive minded coaches who could develop quarterbacks, et cetera. So, you know, I just think you deserve your props there for what you did there. Um, and I just think that for me, that was a sad time to see that you could you could have that kind of impact on a program and a player. And yet you don't even get that respect you deserve. 
Yeah, and I guess that's again goes back to the promotion piece of it because you know to have the keys, as I said, you know, Nick Saban gave me the keys to a Maserati, and, and we had it going pretty well and, and did some nice things. And obviously, Tony has been the primary play caller there at Clemson, and the jobs he has done year in and year out. Um, you know, it, I do know he's a guy that will get an opportunity. Um, I know he's obviously very calculated and making sure that he takes the right kind of opportunity because I think that is important. And um, again, the fit again, that we always talk about. So hopefully I've been able to land the dream job that I've always coveted, which is the Maryland job. This is where I've always wanted to be and hopefully the coalition and can help Tony get to where he gets an opportunity to leave whatever kind of program, whether it's the NFL or the college level at the highest level, because he's well-deserving of that opportunity. Locks, you know, one thing, you know, Jim talked about, you guys didn't even get a call, uh, you know, an, an opportunity to interview. Again, this is where the media comes into it. Cause I guarantee you during the broadcast, people weren't talking about Mike Loxley and Tony Elliott. They were talking about the head coaches and I see it all the time, especially watching college football. Like Tony Elliott just didn't have Trevor Lawrence. He had Deshaun Watson, right? It, but but Steve, I mean, see this this is where I got to push back a little bit. They may not have talked about Locks and Antonio during that time, but they damn sure talked about Steve Sarkeesian an awful lot. Right? They damn sure talked right. about Lane Kiffin Lane an awful Kiffin. lot. Damn right. And again, we're not trying to throw show, throw shade and put you in a, in a crazy box, Mike. But this is just a media observation because I see I saw it this weekend, and I'm just kind of like, God. Now Eric Bieniemy's getting some shine as he should. You know, he should be a head coach. Robert Sala is getting his deserved shine. Well, let's kind of go back to what Jim asked you. What is the list? And if we can keep it to the NFL of maybe some coaches and if you, you know, and general managers who you think should get interviews, will get interviews um, for those positions, and maybe some guys who should get looked at for coordinator positions as well. Yeah, you know, some of the top, the top of our list, obviously, a guy that uh, I know pretty intimately is Pep Hamilton. I mean, Here's a guy that has, uh, in, in our field, is probably one of the more revered quarterback whispers, as we like to use that term in the media. Uh, the job he's done, um, whether it was leading the Colts offense under Andrew Andrew Luck, uh, to now, you know, going back to having a, a, a rookie and Justin Herbert over there at, uh, with the Chargers and the the job he's done with his development. I mean, this is a guy that's done it over and over again. And uh, a guy that I think you see with the head coaching experience he gained from being in the XFL league with the Washington team, I think well prepared to to be able to go in and be a head coach at that level. Uh, no doubt in my mind, obviously Jim Caldwell, who's we've, we've mentioned earlier, who uh, had as much success at Detroit as the last two guys before and after him. And the fact that, you know, the success he's had with quarterbacks and and and, and at that level, uh, he's a guy whose name uh, should 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 be out there. Obviously, we know Eric Bieniemy. you know, one of the young names that I think uh, as an up and coming guy would be the Marcus Brady over in Indianapolis. And right. Colts uh, quarterback coach, the quarterback coach there and the job that he, he has done there with Philip Rivers and having those guys prepared. So I'm going to get on the Hugh Jackson uh, train in that. You know, there have been very few guys that have had success in Cleveland as a head coach, and now I think they've kind of got the infrastructure straight. But if you look at the the history of what he's done on offense and as a coordinator and his ability to lead men, and I mean, going through what they went through at Cleveland, this, 
the things he learned probably from being a first-time or a second-time full-time head coach, I think it, it enables him to come into any situation and, and have success because of the experiences he's gained. And and lastly, Locks, before we go, you, you know, college football, we've seen it this year. Your conference wasn't supposed to play. Then it plays COVID outbreaks. You guys were only able to play five games at Maryland this year. We've heard, we've heard you know, NFL GMs talk about – you know, Andrew Barry, the Browns is like every day at five fifteen, he gets a text to see if there's any positive tests and how it's just nerve wracking trying to push through every day. What is that like trying to figure out if you can practice that day, if you can be together and, and the fact that you could only play five games this season because of it? Yeah, it started with me and that, you know, our team understood that every week we had two opponents we were going to face COVID and whoever we were playing that week. I, I did practice plans, two or three different practice plans in one day based off of updated information that comes constantly, whether it's contact tracing, the positive tests, uh, isolation, the guys who all of a sudden we thought you had. So it, it really taught me that I'm a little more creative than what I give myself credit for, uh, but also that, you know, living day to day is, is a tough, tough way to live as a coach. And, we, you know, we always want to forecast and project and plan out. Well, this forced us that you learn the rules for the day around 4.15 in the morning and you create the rules for that day to attack that day and make the most of it. All right, Coach Locks, man, we really appreciate the work you're, you're doing, the coalition is doing. Um, it is needed, it's necessary, and hopefully we can circle back, hell, in a couple of weeks once we see what this NFL hiring cycle is like to see if some of the things – that have happened, would you you would consider success, failure, or whatever that may come? So appreciate you joining us here on the Huddling Flow. Thank you. Thank you, guys. Appreciate it. You know, Steve, if anyone has a reason to be bitter, it, it's Michael Loxley. And um, that's why I'm so impressed that he's so positive, or in terms of trying to stay positive and focus on solutions rather than dwelling on the problem because think about this we know over the past few years owners and teams have talked about wanting offensive-minded head coaches they want to talk to people who have that creativity and and all those sorts of things well michael loxley had spent 10 consecutive years associated with a quarterback position either as a position coach an offensive coordinator or a head coach 10 consecutive years and then when he decided, you know what, I may want to try and give this NFL a try, not even necessarily as a head coach, but just making the jump to the NFL, he was told, you know what, first you got to do an internship. Now, I just wonder how many white coaches out there who have spent 10 years associated with a quarterback position as a position coach, a coordinator, or a head coach who wanted to make the jump from college would be told, you got to do an internship first. And to his credit, Michael Loxley said, you know what? I'm going to humble myself. And he went and he did an internship, a summer internship with the Broncos. So again, if anyone has a reason to be bitter, it's him. But instead, he's trying to do right. He's trying to, to make right and make progress here in terms of addressing this situation so that hopefully other young minority coaches who come behind him won't have to go through the same thing that he went through. And Jim, I think what's so important too is what the Fritz Pollard Alliance and what this, this coalition is doing is they're preparing these coaches. And we were talking about 
you know, in the interview, oh, yeah, well, he doesn't interview well. He said, we're going to make sure that that excuse can't be had. Because, Jim, we, we've heard it forever, or his staff can't really be that good. We looked at his staff. So they're going to give depth charts. Like, if you can't get this guy out of his contract to be your D.C., here's three more people. We're not going to give uh, allow these teams to use any excuses. Because, Jim, those excuses are still coming. So for, for those of you who don't know, the NFL does a thing called the, the Quarterback Coaching Summit. And they've done it for the past three summers where they brought together coaches from all levels, small schools, major programs, NFL coaches and, and personnel candidates. And what we get to see behind the scenes, like when Jim Caldwell runs down how to schedule a practice for a week. And here's how you do this from injuries to meetings to on, on Tuesdays, you schedule, okay, we got to, we got to, our, our got to have it plays, our negative goal line plays, our thing. And you're like, holy crap. Just by the time he finishes that 45 minute session, you're like, he can do this and present it like this. And they're trying to say that he he's he's not that good. Or when you hear my guy Garrick McGee down at the University of Florida explain protections, weak side, backside, odd numbers, 34, 43, when teams are coming with dime nickel pressures, you're like, there's a million other guys who can who can do this besides him. I mean, so you know, the one thing we've learned is these candidates are there. It is an opportunity type of thing. And that's why, you know, when you hear us mention Pep Hamilton, because Justin Herbert, I mean, yeah, Justin Jefferson is also in the running for the offensive rookie of the year, but what Justin Herbert's doing is insane. And you heard Herbert come out after this game giving Pep Hamilton all of this credit. And this is not to throw shade at anybody, but then the next day I see an article about Mike Kafka the quarterback's coach in Kansas City, or Kevin O'Connell getting all of this love as coaching candidates and Pep Hamilton's not mentioned, I'm kind of like, wait a second. You know, what What are we missing here? What is it? We're not missing anything. anything. <laughs> yeah, We're not missing anything. It's these owners who, some of whom aren't willing to recognize they're being used by the media and that the media are being used by the agents and some of these potential candidates themselves and are trying to curry favor. So they put names out there who either aren't ready or shouldn't be jumping ahead of others. Look, um, Pep Hamilton, his track record speaks for itself. All I know is that Andrew Luck had his best season ever as a professional with Pep Hamilton as his offensive coordinator. Justin Herbert went in and played against the defending Super Bowl champion Chiefs on with 30 seconds notice that he was going to start when Tyrod Taylor took an injection that punctured a lung or, or there was damage to the lung, couldn't play, and all of a sudden they have to turn to Justin Herbert and say, hey, rookie, you're starting now. Get in there. And he nearly pulled off the upset against yeah. the defending Super Bowl champ. So Pep had him ready, even though he wasn't even thought of as a starter at that point. Um, he's been a coordinator at the, at the major college level, whether we're talking Stanford, working at Michigan with Jim Harbaugh. He's been a head coach in the XFL and a GM in the XFL. So clearly, Andrew Luck's father, Oliver Luck, thought enough of Pep Hamilton that when Oliver Luck started running the XFL, he went to Pep and said, we want you to be a head coach and a GM of the Washington franchise. So why his name is not mentioned more, to me, is a travesty. This is a guy who, as, as Locke said, when you talk about quarterback whispers and whatnot, every quarterback he has worked with, for the most part, 
they have had career years under him. So if you're looking for offensive minded coaches or someone who can get the quarterback right, Pep Hamilton's that guy. Well, Jim, we just want to let everybody know, because like you said, we're not missing anything. We ain't going to miss anything. Next Monday, we're going to see who's going to be gone. And over the next couple of weeks, we're going to see who's going to be here. And part of what we're going to do with the Huddle and Flow podcast is we are going to keep it 100% real. We hear of any shenanigans, we're calling you on it. Here, we're going to do our jobs. And, you know, you do the right thing, we're calling you on it. Here's the other thing, though, Steve, that, that isn't talked about a lot. And, and there is some genuine concern among some minority coaches that the more we shine a spotlight on this and the more we call out the owners, because it is an ownership problem. I don't care what right. the league will tell you. It's a league problem. It's an ownership problem that the more we shine a spotlight on it, that some of these owners are so stubborn and petty that they'll say, you know what? Bump you. Um, we're not hiring a minority. And, and there's genuine concern among some minority coaches that that could be the case. But as I tell them, I only know one way to do this. And that's to be as honest and as transparent as I can about this process. And when you see wrong, you speak up on it. And what's been happening in the NFL is just flat out wrong. And so I hope there's not some blowback. Um, but as you said, you and I, we're going to call out what we see. And I'm just never going to change in that way. I refuse no, and, to. And Jim, you know, you, you know, and this is something we want to tell everyone, everyone is that, you know, that's one thing about, you know, diverse coaching candidates is they, they coach and exist in such fear of reprisal for speaking to us or for putting their names out there. Like they're non, they're, like their white colleagues and counterparts, that they don't do it. And no matter how much we say, like strike up relationships with the media, strike up relationships with these people. Well, if coach sees me doing this, like, well, what do you think dude over here is doing? And so mm -hmm. that's another thing we've got to get, we have got to stop fearing the negative or the potential reprisal and, and freaking sometimes you have to jump off the cliff and trust that the ripcord is going to open the parachute because that's a lot of, that's a lot of times the only way you're going to land on two feet. So Amen. again, Yep. So we're going to continue watching this. We got a fantastic week 17 coming up. We'll have we'll come back with, with some more smoke next week, Jim. You know, I'm going to continue doing it here on the Huddle and Flow. So why don't you take us home? We want to thank you all for subscribing. We want to thank you for listening. Uh, we could not do what we do without you. So please leave us your comments. Let us know what you're thinking. And that way we can give you more of what you're funking for that's right and for all of those who didn't catch the very beginning of our interview with mike loxley just go and google some videotape of len bias because he's one of the baddest dudes to ever wear some short shorts on a basketball court dude lenny bias was just incredible you know i, I words can't do justice to how good he was and he was to me he was still just coming into his own now imagine him being there with Larry Bird, Kevin McHale, Robert wow. Parrish. As much as I loved the Lakers back then, I'm sorry, Magic. You ain't winning any more titles if all of those dudes are healthy and Lenny's healthy, hey, Jim, you know? If Len Bias had gone to the Celtics, there would actually be a whole lot more black Celtics fans Ooh. than there are right now. God, he was special. Man, he was special. Anyway, for our producer, Thomas Warren, who's on the ones and twos behind the scenes, 
my man Jim Trotter. I'm Steve White. We are the Howard Mob, and we are out. You go into your shower feeling tired, but as soon as you reach for the Irish Spring, your day immediately gets better. That crisp, fresh, unmistakable Irish Spring scent zings your brain and awakens your senses. So when you finally emerge from the shower 37 minutes later because you pay the water bill so you can stay in there as long as you want, you're ready to take on the day and smell great doing it. Irish Spring Body Wash and Bar Soap. Fresh, green, Irish. Shop now at a store near you. You know that feeling when you walk into your home, take a deep breath, and feel new? Well, that's what it's like to use Clorox Sentiva. Because Clorox Sentiva smells like coconut, cleans like Clorox, and feels like energy. It'll elevate any cleaning routine to not just clean, but also make every room smell like a tropical coconut getaway. Discover how Clorox Sentiva's powerful clean and refreshing scents can transform your space. Get yours in coconut or other fabulous scents at a nearby retail store. Are you looking for the perfect move-in ready home this spring season? Now's the time to buy at Fisher Homes. For a limited time only, enjoy below market interest rates starting at 5.375% APR, 6.139% APR. With these exclusive lower rates, you can save hundreds on a move-in ready home and start enjoying the benefits of home ownership even faster. Schedule your personal tour with one of our new home specialists at fisherhomes.com and make this spring the season you find your perfect home sweet home. Financing provided by Victory Mortgage, LLC, NMLS 461249, Equal Housing Lender.